Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. According to the prevailing logic, America has an anger management problem. It's counterproductive, destructive, and unchecked might lead you to storm the Capitol. But not all anger is made equal. And perhaps the best way to master its uses and abuses is to understand its differences. In her new book, The Case for Rage, University of California philosophy professor Maisha Cherry contends that this misunderstood emotion, wielded successfully in the past by figures like Audre Lorde, Martin Luther King Jr., and Ida B. Wells, can fuel today's fight against racism. Maisha Cherry joins us from California to discuss how to cultivate the kind of rage we need to make a better world. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. So everyone is always talking about how America is so angry on (laughs) every side of every aisle ever invented. So why not throw the baby out with the bathwater? What is the case for rage? So that's not just a stereotype. I mean, I, I think the American Revolution was started you know, with rage, right, which is connected to a lot of liberal principles. Um, So it is true. I mean, I think that there's a lot to be angry about. I mean, particularly as a philosopher of emotion, um, anger is an app or fit in response to injustice and and wrongdoing. Um, So as much as we may be more angry than other countries, uh, our anger is apt if if, if we're responding to something that is indeed uh, wrong. The the question is, are we doing just that? And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. So the case that I'm making in the book is not just for for rage simpliciter, because I think there are times in which, um, and we can talk about this a little later, in which uh, anger can arise due to a misreading or misinterpretation of the facts. Um, It can arise out of uh, not notions of, of liberty, but liberty just for you. Right. And the restricting of liberty for other people. So the case uh, or the rage that I'm making a case for is what I call a noble or virtuous anger, um, particularly in the context of political injustice, racial injustice. So it's an anti-racist anger. I call it Lordian rage in the book. Um, it's an anger that's very much different from the other kind of destructive kinds in that it's an anger that is a, a response to racism and race, racist attitudes, racist assumptions, uh, racial structures. Um, it's, it's targeted towards change, a radical transformation of our world. Um, it doesn't have a kind of a narcissistic or individualistic mentality. It is con- concerned about getting freedom for everyone. So it has what I call an inclusive perspective. Um, it has a tendency to value those who are marginalized and those who are oppressed. It's motivational. It can lead one to engage in productive action. So that's the kind of rage that I think is, is useful um, in the fight for racial justice. And that's the case that I'm making in the book. Yeah, I didn't expect opening a philosophy book to find the kind of anger you're discussing be named after Audre Lorde. And right. I love it. I mean, I think it has a really great ring to it. How does Audre Lorde figure into your definition of this rage? Yeah, so I remember when I got very interested in the topic and I was reading feminist philosophers, uh, their take on anger. And I noticed that they kept referencing this popular essay. And it was called The Uses of Anger, Audre Lorde, The Uses of Anger, Audre Lorde. Now, I knew Audre Lorde uh, didn't have a PhD in philosophy because I knew that there was only about 50 black women ever who's ever had a PhD in philosophy. So I was like, who, who is this Audre Lorde? This, this, I would know if there was another black woman who was a philosopher. But come to find out that Audre Lorde was a feminist, um, a, a poet, um, a scholar. And uh, she delivered this, this speech uh, that ended up becoming part of an essay collection in um, Sister Outsider called The Uses, The Uses of Anger. 
And I remember reading it and I was just blown away. And I teach that essay every year. And every time I go back to it, I find something new, something different, a different perspective. And I think as a result of, of reading the work, there's some, as I just described the kind of angle that I'm defending in the book, um, some of the features uh, that I describe borrows heavily from, from Audre Lorde. So she starts off that essay, uh, Defining Racism. And she talks about how, you know, the anger that she feels is in response to that, to that racism, right? And I thought, hmm, hmm, say some more, Audre Lorde, right? Because what she was describing was what I, I felt all of my life since my first encounter with racism is what I was witnessing as people were responding to what happened to Trayvon Martin. This was around about 2012 that I started doing, doing this research. So I was like, I just want to say a little bit more. And then she began to, to talk about how, you know, I mentioned the inclusive perspective. So she ends that essay. Uh, she says that we're not free until all of us are free. And I'm like, hmm. So you're not just concerned about you as a, a middle-class, educated black woman. You want freedom for everybody. Um, so I was like, huh, there's this, this, this anger that she's talking about. It, it's, it's not just directed at racism, but it's including everybody. And she really wants to get white women on board with this, right? Um, so that there's features, the inclusiveness feature, the targeted feature. And she talks about the productive aspect of this rage, right? And the only thing that she suggests is, could be unproductive is when we suppress it, when we don't express it, when we transform it into guilt, which can be paralyzing for her, right? And so as I, I, as I read the essay, I was beginning to see, now mind you, she, she, she's very specific with, with suggesting that she's not a theorist, but you read that essay, you can unearth the theory that she's refusing to engage in, the theorizing that she's refusing to engage in, but she leaves the pebbles for us to pick up for ourselves, for the theorists to pick up. And as a result of reading that essay, I came with, with features of a kind of anger that I was witnessing in my community, that I have witnessed historically, and that I felt that it was important for us to embrace and enact in the world. Um, so thank you, Audre Lorde. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, thank you, Audre Lorde, indeed, for so many reasons. Um, I think it's also really interesting that you mentioned how long you've been doing this research on anger and mm -hmm. how much has happened and how little has happened, right. in a sense, right. in American society since then. I mean, have you seen the way we talk about anger in America change in the decade or so since you've been working on this book, since, you know, Trayvon Martin's murder, since the Black Lives Matter movement took off compared to last year? I haven't seen it change. I think what I have seen change, and you know, if you can recall, Trayvon Martin was the first time we expressed Black Lives Matter, as far as the, 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 the slogan itself. And what you notice is that um, when that slogan was expressed, there was some controversy. Remember the All Lives Matter retorts, all that stuff. Um, and then in last year, 2020, you kind of seem to see kind of a more embracing of the slogan. And so you have corporations putting the slogan up on their websites, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I, what I saw, if anything, that changed as far as what people's interpretations of what things meant was in regards to that particular slogan. What I didn't see is a transformation of how people interpreted the anger of people who, who expressed that slogan. So one of the things that I was motivated by as I was witnessing people's anger um, in reference to Trayvon Martin's murder um, was as much as they were expressing the anger, I was also seeing pundits and people criticize their anger, right? And when I think about 2020 um, and everything that has happened since um, Trayvon Martin's death and before that, it's still this suspicion around the anger, it's still this tone policing around the anger. It's still this discomfort around the anger. And so for me, that hasn't changed. 
And so as much as I, you know, over the years, I begin to think, you know, eventually, you know, uh, this book that I'm working on is not going to be relevant. <laughs> Unfortunately, it still is. And, and I'm hoping that what the book would do, first of all, is a love letter to the outrage for them not to feel shameful about what they feel and for them to come, come to an understanding about what they feel so they can continue to, to harness it for its wonder and its splendor. But also I, I'm, I'm writing it uh, for those who have been heavily critical of anger consistently uh, to perhaps change their mind in some kind of way um, so that they can be less vocal and the anger can do the work that I want it to do and that I believe that it can do in the world. But that, that I haven't seen. The suspicion is very much there. I mean, I've been, I've been doing talks and, and lectures in relationship to the book and I constantly get questions that I got in 2012, mm. right? The, the worries are still there. The concerns are still there. People are still conflating anger with revenge, retribution and violence, right? And believing that, hey, you shouldn't feel anger. You should feel love instead. Look at Martin Luther King. I'm still seeing those kinds of responses. Yeah. I mean, what was really helpful for me in reading the book was reading about was reading your definitions of the anger you're not talking right, about. Right. Um, and honestly, I think it also is useful in analyzing sort of the anger of white supremacy, because mm-hmm. I was sort of ready to lump it all together in one bucket. It all comes mm-hmm. from the same place. But actually, there are a couple different flavors. And right. maybe you can parse the different kinds of anger there are. And I also thought your names for them were really clever. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, so, so I think people have a tendency to paint anger in broad strokes in ways that they don't do with other emotions, right? And, and one of the things that I, I always think about is love. I mean, we always talk about love, 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 but we also make distinctions between different kinds of love. I mean, the Greeks did this millennia ago. So, you know, you don't even have to know Greek to know that there is some, a such thing as agape love, and that's very different from, like, <laughs> erotic love, right? We already know that there's some distinctions in that domain, right? Um, but we don't tend to do the same thing with anger, um, if anything, we just change the wording, but we still judge it to be the same. So we may have some change with anger, indignation, righteous indignation, fury, wrath, no matter what, <laughs> rage. We still think it's bad. <laughs> so, you know, even though we may have different names for it, our, our, our assumptions around it is this is a horrible emotion to feel. So if that's your if that's your opinion, then, you know, you go to any Google search and you, you have people suggesting, oh, this is how you ought to manage your anger. This is how you ought to eliminate it. Right? The same prescription for getting rid of it is always the same. And one of the things that, you know, Audre Lorde has helped me in regards to this um, is that, listen, anger shouldn't be painted in broad strokes. There are different kinds of angers. And I specifically lay out in the book that I believe that there's different kinds of anger in the context of political injustice. And so I name about five types. What makes these angers different, it's not just that they have different names, is that who it's directed at is different, what it aims to do is different, the perspective that informs it is different, and you take all of that, then the kind of action that is going to motivate as a result of those three things is also going to be different, right? So for example, I've already mentioned what Lord is, what its target is, targeted towards racism and racist attitudes and racist people. It aims to change our world for the better, it has an inclusive perspective, so it's concerned about freedom for everybody. And if that's the case, then you can only imagine that the kind of action that one is going to be motivated to engage in is productive action that includes everyone, that includes kind of just reforms, et cetera, et cetera. You contrast that with something like something that is close to it, but not necessarily it. So let's say narcissistic rage, right? An account that I, I'm borrowing from Bell Hooks. Narcissistic rage, it can be targeted towards racism racist attitudes, right? 
it can aim for transformation, right? But the perspective that informs it is I only want justice just for me. And so an example one might say is, let's say black elites, or an example that I use in the book um, is a white guy who's getting pinned down by the police in a uh, airport, and he says, you're basically treating me like a black person. So he's not asking that the, the police treat civilians better. He's asking that he be treated better because he is white. And so forget all the police brutality in relationship to black people, right? And so that's going to inform the kind of actions that you engage in. Something that is to the extreme of that um, is something that I call wipe rage. So not white rage, wipe rage, W-I-P-E. And this is, this is targeted towards scapegoats. Right. And it's not really interested in really um, being angry at the actual problem. Right. It's directed at people who are scapegoats. It aims to eliminate its target. And the perspective that includes it is this kind of zero sum game. And if that's the case, that's going to inform the kind of actions that you're going to engage in. So you're going to go down to the Capitol on January 6th, demand that people be killed, be hung right? Your anger due to, one might say, the government ignoring you is not directed at the government per se or one of the politicians per se, uh, but the left simpliciter, right? And that's going to inform the kind of actions that you engage in. So I want to say that what happened on January 6th and the kind of anger that those people had, the kind of anger that a white guy or black elites have in an airport is very different from the kind of rage that I'm describing, Um, And I I think it's important for us to know those differences. Not only is it going to help us to assess what anger is actually good or not, but it's also going to help us try to figure out what we're feeling. And if we're not headed in the right direction or we notice that our anger is aiming for something that we probably don't want it to aim at, then we can know how to transition to the more productive kind, which is lording and rage. So how does rage get treated in the philosophical tradition? Are any of these distinctions dealt with you mentioned aristotle earlier but i wonder if you know there's other philosophers you're responding to yeah a lot of people are still inspired or influenced by aristotle's um account of anger his description of anger so more recently i mean one of the things that i i say is that you know i use aristotle in, in the text in ways you can't help but use aristotle if you do any kind of moral philosophy um and he seems to satisfy my aims and there's another philosopher who, when she uses Aristotle, she's able to use Aristotle in ways that satisfy her aims, right? And so you may read Aristotle at one point in which Aristotle says, hey, what it is to be angry is to have kind of this this desire for revenge, right? Um, And so you may read that and think, well, what anger just conceptually involves this this kind of desire, and so get rid of it. And then there's another part where you would read Aristotle and Aristotle suggests that what it, what it is to be angry, if, you, if you've been mistreated and you're not angry, then you're not self-respecting. So he's like, oh, so anger's connected to self-respect? Aristotle, thank you, right? Or there's another point where Aristotle says something, you know, you know, he talks about virtue and excellence. Well, if you want your anger to be virtuous, to be angry at the right thing, at the right time, to the right degree, huh, okay, thank you, Aristotle, right? So there's, there's some things that you can borrow, and those are the two things that I borrow from Aristotle, and I reject the conceptual picture. But there are philosophers. Uh, there's a book that came out several years ago, Martha Nussbaum, um, who believes that, you know, according to Aristotle, conceptually involves this desire for payback. So let's get rid of it and replace it with other more positive emotions that doesn't come with those kind of moral risks, such as generosity and such as love. 
Um, so the fight continues just when I think <laughs> feminist philosophers are, you know, valuing anger and using Aji Lord, you know, as a resource and they're reclaiming it. The conversation still continues. Not everyone thinks that that particular way. And, and what I'm trying to do in this particular space um, is to allow us to see the value of it in the context of racial injustice, which I haven't seen in the philosophical literature. And I think there's a lot to be said. Um, and things get a little bit more complicated when you think about not just anger that I have against my cousin or against my sister, but the kind of anger that you feel when you're living in a society that consistently and persistently oppresses people. What kind of emotions do you have in response to that? What, what would it take to really transform this particular society? Um, what is the best way to get motivated? What is the, what is the you know, productive way to ascribe value to those that we love? I mean, anger, it's there. And, and I want us to deal with it um, because I've seen historical figures. I mean, you know, Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin. Um, these are the figures that are not necessarily talked about. Um, that I believe embody the kind of virtuous anger, anti-racist anger that I'm referring to. And so I'm trying to continue that reclaiming tradition, um, concerned with a very different space, um, igniting very different historical figures, um, and believing that it's, it's a tool and a resource for good as opposed to bad. But the debate continues. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because there's this one line in the book where you define it. Lordian rage as a non-ideal emotion in response to a non-ideal society, which I think jives really well with some popular sayings of late, you know, especially during the Trump presidency, like, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. (laughs) Or, you know, all of the books, um, especially in the feminist tradition that have come out, you know, in contemporary feminist Mm -hmm. literature Mm -hmm. with, you know, anger or angry or rage in the title. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, we've talked a little bit about the feminist tradition it's come up Audre Lorde obviously was writing in the feminist tradition but she was a Mm -hmm. black feminist too Mm -hmm. are these conceptions of Lordian rage at odds with the kind of contemporary feminist rage that we have floating in the ether do you think yeah I mean I've been I've been I've been so excited about these books that I've been been reading um, in the last couple of years Uh, good and mad rage becomes her Eloquent rage, and that's a little bit more mixing race and gender. Um, but I've been inspired, and, and I've and I've learned a, I learned a lot. Um, and they have even engaged, or at least flirted, with the philosophical tradition. But they're relying on their strengths, right? Which journalistic strengths, um, strengths in other other disciplines as opposed to the philosophical. So I've learned a lot, and I reference some of them in the book. Um, well, one of the things that I think is important, and I borrowed this from Audre Lorde. I mean, she believes that difference matters. Um. And we need to look at difference and accept difference. And I, I've applied that in my kind of methodology. And so when I think about um, anger in response to uh, misogyny and sexism, I think these books have done a, a great job with highlighting the, the gender nature of, of anger and how it's important for women to reclaim that. Um, but I want people to see that that can look different in a racial context. Um, so there's not just a gendered dimension to anger, but one of the things I'm trying to allow people to know that there's also a racialized dimension of anger. And we need to be aware of that. And so that's one of the things that I try to uh, highlight in the, in the book. Um, and the kind of oppositions that one will face, um, the kind of uh, uh, restrictive moves that one will face in regards in response to one's anger is also going to be different when race has something to do with it as opposed to just, just gender. So in some ways, I want to continue uh, the tradition of looking at anger in a non-ideal context, but recognizing that a racial context, although it can be similar to 
it is not the same as a racial context. And, and I think that's what, what makes this book quite different from the books that have come out recently, but not just in the public domain, but also philosophically. I mean, there's, like I mentioned subtly, there's not a lot of black philosophers. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of uh, philosophers that have written about English specifically about racial injustice. And so I hope to start that conversation and provide a resource where people can now take this and continue to be in conversation with me and disagree with me and continue thinking about it in this particular context. Yeah, I think you're right. I've noticed that in the popular press, there is a lot more about rage. It's a little more au courant, but there's also a ton about stoicism. And especially in the academic tradition, there's way more about stoicism. And I, as you can tell by my tone, I'm not really a fan. (laughs) I think it's, you know, in vogue with the The same brand. The Stoics are going to be so mad at us. The neo-Stoics are going to be so mad at us. They know. They know. Because I've already done an episode about Epicureans and how it's so superior. But (laughs) like, I think I think what gets me about stoicism is like, to me, it reads as really white and it reads as really male in a lot of ways like I think of you know a millennial who's into stoicism I think of like a white man on Facebook who's really into logic and reason. who lives in the bay he lives in the bay area lives in the bay area works in Silicon Valley you know um but you know I'm not a philosopher I just dabble so I wonder how you see the you know the righteous anger that is increasingly in the mainstream interacting with its other mainstream trend of reason, rationality, level-headedness, controlling your emotions. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I, at the, the last chapter or second to last chapter of the book, I talk about anger management and I uh, talk about a lot of Stoics who had recommendations about how we can manage our anger. And one of the things that I say is like, that sounds cool and all. Like one suggestion is, you know, uh, don't engage in any kind of profession that would arouse one's anger, right? So this is a way for you not to get angry. But I'm like, so like, but <laughs> oppression is not a job. So like, <laughs> what if it's ever present? Then what suggestion do you have for me? And, and I, think, I think what I'm trying to say there is, Discipline and, 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 and moderation and not don't think about this, don't think about that, do this sounds good in the abstract. But in the real world and non-ideal conditions, um, when you're in the struggle, when you are discriminated against, oppressed, mistreated, et cetera, et cetera, because of your identity, the suggestions that they offer just doesn't apply. Not only don't they apply, they can have tremendous effects on how we respond to injustice. Um, so I don't want to say that we shouldn't be cautious, that we shouldn't, um, interrogate our emotions and try to see what's at the heart and root of them, that we ought not to have a different perspective or at least consider our perspective of how we approach the world. But if we leave out the details and we ignore the oppressiveness of a particular state, um, then we're just creating a good pep talk, a good self-improvement lecture from people who lived millennia ago, and we're not really interested in transforming our world. Um, and I just, I just think that, I just think that discipline sounds good and management sounds good, but there's going to come a time when the when life is going to present to you a kind of situation in which you're going to have to exercise what a philosopher calls uh, the burden virtues. Uh, or walking virtues that in ideal conditions we will wish that you wouldn't have to feel this particular feeling but we don't live in perfect conditions and given what we're up against this would be an excellence of character for you to respond in this particular way which is anger 
And I think I think the stoic, I would say the way in which we have tried to reclaim stoicism is that we have tried to embrace it with any kind of ignorance about how the world actually is. And anytime you do that with any particular trans, uh, tradition, um, you are misusing it in ways that just is just detrimental. I mean, another strand of your work and your next book also is on forgiveness, <laughs> right. um, which I think is also um, misappropriated a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what is the connection between anger and forgiveness? And does the latter necessarily follow the former? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really brought me to anger per se was I was constantly hearing, um, you know, you notice that there were interviews of Trayvon Martin's parents. And I remember one of the interview viewers, one of the reporters asked his parents, do you think you can ever forgive George Zimmerman? And I noticed that every black body who was being killed by the police, a reporter, in the press conference, continued to ask a similar question. Can you find it in your heart to forgive this officer whether he apologizes or not? And I'm like, what is going on with this forgiveness stuff? <laughs> Why is this happening? So I went back to graduate school and did a dissertation on the, uh, uh, the appropriateness of forgiveness requests. That's how bothered I was. <laughs> That's how bothered I was about these questions. Um, but as I was, so I was trying to figure out, so what is it about this forgiveness thing that people keep asking about? And when I went to the philosophical literature, I realized that the most popular counter forgiveness was the letting go of anger. And then my rabbit hole continued. So why should we let go of anger? And then we went down a rabbit hole in that regard. Um, so I've been going down rabbit holes after rabbit holes for the last 10 years. <laughs> rabbit hole for forgiveness, finish the dissertation, I'll do anger, rabbit hole, and then let's go back to forgiveness and try to do something kind of different. But the connection is, I mean, one of the most popular things, people think that what it means to forgive is to let go of anger. And what I'm trying to, to argue in, in, the, in the next book, which is published by Princeton University Press, is that we have a narrow view of forgiveness. Um, it's not that we're wrong. In some instances, what it would be to forgive for you may be to let go of anger. But another situation, it may entail another moral practice. And so I'm trying to get us to, to broaden our, our view of forgiveness um, as it suggests that uh, forgiveness can include a variety of moral practices, not just the letting go of anger. Right. I can let go of hatred or I can let go of contempt or I can decide not to seek revenge out on you. And I do it with a particular moral aim. Right. Maybe one aim is reconciliation, but not always the case. It may be the case that we do not walk off in the sunset together. It may be the case that as a result of forgiving you, I got some kind of release for myself or I gave you some kind of relief or there was some moral repair that happened in our particular community. Right. So I just, I'm just trying to get us to broaden Um, our perspective about what forgiveness can be, letting us know that forgiveness is not one thing, nor does it look like the same thing in every instance. And if we do that, that this is going to improve the ways in which we respond to wrongdoing. Um, It's going to lessen our expectations of what forgiveness can do and give us a guide about what we can really do to repair our world. We have links in the show notes to Maisha Cherry's new book, The Case for Rage, as well as an excerpt. You can also read Audre Lorde's seminal essay, The Uses of Anger, which inspired Cherry's coining of the term Lordian rage. And we also have links to two past episodes that I mentioned, one with the writer Pankaj Mishra, whose book Age of Anger is all about non-Lordian rage, as well as that episode about Epicureanism, which just might inspire you this new year. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.